This is the Two North Jackson podcast with news, insights, details, and accomplishments from Alabama's 67 county governments. Welcome to the February edition of the Two North Jackson podcast. Today, we'll talk about the current state of Alabama's correction system, disaster recovery, and driving a little more safely. We'll start with our friend Bennett Wright, the executive director of the Alabama Sentencing Commission, a very familiar face in Alabama's capital and in Alabama's state house. He's also visited with us several times at our annual convention. And Bennett, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me. We want to start our conversation with perhaps a little history so that our listeners know the hard work that Alabama has put in to try to address the problems that confront us today in our prison system. You were really at the head of the table as Alabama tried to implement and now are using some more common sense, level playing field sentencing guidelines, and that's certainly helped. We had the Prison Reform Act of 2015. The legislature, a little more than a year ago, put together what seemed to be a common sense plan for releasing inmates when they're very close to the end of their sentence, and certainly a whole lot of other hard work that's gone on behind the scenes, yet we open up our computers every morning and there's something new about corrections in Alabama. Well, I think one of the most complicated areas of government is criminal justice. Just to give everyone a little bit of background, in 1980, as a state, we held about 6,000 prisoners. That's roughly the time Alabama entered into federal litigation, was in the late 70s, early 1980s. By the end of that decade, our prison population had doubled. We were at about 12,000, and we continued on an upward trajectory, as did most states around the nation, albeit Alabama's was a little bit steeper of a trajectory. And by about 2003, 2004, 2005, we had almost 26 to 27,000 inmates in Alabama's prisons. We had burgeoning populations in the county jails of individuals that were sentenced to prison. We also held individuals in out-of-state private prison facilities, and we also had contracts with many local county jails around the state. So less than 20 years ago, we had far more people under correctional control. And Alabama's current problems began roughly the same time we came out of federal court a generation ago. Alabama's last prison facility was built about 30 years ago. We have an old prison structure. We never completely funded the prison system to really the level we should have. Hence, one of the reasons we're in federal court on five different issues. Again. Again, and it's roughly a generational cycle. And some of the things we're back in federal court are some of the same issues that we were in federal court before. And then we added some of those issues to the table. So we've come at kind of a crossroads where, as a state, we're trying to modify who can go to prison, how long do they stay. At the same time, we're modifying the facilities in which the state has houses those inmates. Two very, very controversial subjects. And you said that the prison population was about 27,000 or so in 2003. Mm-hmm. And as we sit here today at the end of February in 2023, 20 years later, population is 17, 18,000? Well, currently in the actual custody of DOC, so if we did all their facilities, the minimum facilities, work releases, were about 21,000. So we are, I'll try to do my Alabama math real quick. We're 25% less or thereabouts in population than we were two decades ago. That is correct. Yet we continue to see constant stories late in the month, a story about geriatric prisoners not being released at the rate that some people think. Why do we continue to have one bad story after another in Alabama's prison system if we've in fact reduced population by 25%? 
Sure. And I think there's a multitude of answers, and I'm going to attempt to address that from a couple of different fronts. One thing I think we hear a lot of discussion of is obviously health costs are skyrocketing. And it was in the news recently that the most recent Alabama Department of Corrections health care contract is a little bit more than a billion dollars for four and a half years. So we're approaching a time in Alabama's history where the price tag is going to be about $250 million on an annual basis. And that's with the population down 20 to 25%. And we're starting to see a much older group of cohort enter the geriatric age, which in a correctional population or in the general population, that's an expensive group to manage in healthcare. We have in the Alabama Department of Corrections about 160 people on death row. There's about 1,500 people on life without parole sentences. So there's 1,700 people that will never leave DOC. Right off the top, we know we have to account for 1,700 people's health care for the end of their life. And then there's about 4,000 people serving life sentences. Many of those will likely not be paroled either. So I think as we continue to move along, we hear more and more about the burgeoning health care costs. On the other side of the discussion, people say, well, we need to release people that are in those populations. Well, the problem is there's no one in prison for jaywalking that's 70 years old. That's right. So a lot of the people that are in the geriatric population that have serious health conditions have committed offenses that most in the general public think are very reprehensible offenses and that people need to be punished very, very severely. On the other side of that coin, people will say, well, Bennett has served 40 years of that life sentence. He's 70 years old. He's in a wheelchair. He's incapacitated. He needs to be released. Where other people would say that's a good place for Bennett to be based on the criminal act that he did 40 years ago. I think you make a great point, and that is that everything that happens around the issue of incarceration is loaded with political ammunition on one side or the other. No question. And we see that every day. Every story that plays out, overcrowding, the rising cost of constructing the new prisons that I think almost everyone in Alabama agrees is well overdue. How do we address the aging population? How do we provide for medical care? And the newest thing that we'll see this session, I believe, what do we do about good time? All of those things are shrouded in politics. If we could take politics out of it, you've been at this your whole career. What would the magic wand look like? How would we fix Alabama's correction system if we could get rid of the politics? Sure. And I'll enlarge the question to Alabama's criminal justice system. Okay. I think if you look at all 50 states, then you have the District of Columbia, and then you have the federal court system. You, in essence, have 52 different criminal justice systems at play in the United States. And it always starts with the legislative body, whether it's a General Assembly, Congress, or a legislature, is how do they define what crime is? And that really seems like a novel question, but every jurisdiction around the country defines crime differently. They have the ability to determine what is a misdemeanor, what is a felony. What is a misdemeanor punished as? What is a felony punished as? And then you have different aspects. You have what's eligible for probation, what's not. What's eligible for county jail or regional jail facilities? What's able for really prisons? So if you were to take politics out of it, I think it's not just the prison system. I think if we could have a much better criminal justice system, it would start with what do we do in the communities for those that do not go to incarcerative settings. It starts with what really happens with an 18-year-old kid that has a less serious offense, maybe misdemeanor felony, who may need a little help. If we had a perfect solution, that would definitely be the resources to provide the necessary whether it's treatment, programming, and or supervision to really make that happen. In a state like Alabama, we're so fractured and broken up to municipal, county, state, and it always comes back into who is going to fund this. I think there's a universal acknowledgement that we have to do things, but I also think there's a universal acknowledgement there aren't revenue streams 
to accomplish that. And ultimately, when things don't get accomplished, they end up on the county's dime or at the state's dime for what we all agree should have been tackled much, much earlier. I think everyone acknowledges the system has to change. I think the tough thing is most of the changes result in increasing the prison population and with no accompanying revenue stream to really accomplish what the goals of that are supposed to be. And I sit in the county chair and watch everything that unfolds. I remember 2003, that's about the time the counties sued the Department of Corrections and everybody who was anybody in national news was here in Alabama asking about how that could happen. And we said, well, here's how. There are 4,000 inmates backed up in our jails. But it's really hard, I think, to forge any kind of solution without dealing with every step along the way. You said the entire criminal justice system. So the trajectory we're on. Let's fast forward to 2029. What do things look like then? I think where we are is largely going to be a factor of what we do over the next probably 12 to 24 months. One of the single largest factors that I think the counties are very well familiar with is one common thread runs through the federal litigation involved in Alabama prisons, and that is correctional staffing. If anyone had the answer to that, other than increasing the pay to $100,000, no one really knows what that answer is. And that's going to be the single thing that determines our ability to even open the new facilities. We have to make sure we have proper staffing and retention. The last time I heard, Alabama Department of Corrections' attrition rate of correctional officers runs north of 75% within three years. I think one of the reasons for that is a lot of the counties do a good thing and pay people that work in the county jails more money than some of the prisons do for working in the prisons. A lot of them go to the municipal police forces as well. And I can't say I blame them. Our prisons are in such rough shape, I'm not sure who wouldn't take the opportunity to get out of those to work in better facilities. So I think where we are in five years is going to be largely dependent on our ability to find the answer to recruiting and retaining correctional officers in our state facilities. And that's a huge ask. As you said, the working conditions are not attractive. Compensation is not attractive, better than it was, but certainly not attractive. We face the same thing with county jails. And so I did hear you say that the next 12 to 24 months are critical. Tell me a little more about that. You know, I always like to say sometimes I'm a master of the obvious. You don't want to be in federal court. You don't want to be in the federal court on multiple issues. And you don't want to be back in federal court on things that you haven't been successful with in the past. So I think we have to continue to make progress on a lot of the issues that really we're in federal court on right now. And that's why I think the next 12 to 24 months is going to be critical. I think most people would agree it appears from the outside that the federal court's been pretty patient with Alabama as some of these issues have wound our way through federal court. When the legislature given the authority to really authorize the construction of the facilities, I think we have to continue to show that we're embarking in goodwill in the construction, compensation, conditions, the improvement of medical health care and mental health care. I think it's time for us to put our money where our mouth is and to make sure our actions back up the legal authority that the legislature has granted us. And this is one of those issues that we're not likely to solve. Correct. Folks a lot smarter than me have been trying to figure this out for a lot longer than I've been around this issue. But it is one that we face a critical time in the next year or so. And we're grateful for your leadership. We're grateful for the relationship we have with you. And thank you. Your insights today were outstanding. Hopefully we'll get you back in a year or so and we can be a little more upbeat. We'd love to. Thank you very much. And thanks very much for joining us, Bennett. 
And now we'll turn our attention to a discussion about CDBGDR. And if you don't know exactly what all those letters mean, we'll hopefully educate you over the next few minutes. And we have Rondell Roan, County Commissioner in Clark County, for a little more than 30 years, I think, and was president of the association back in 2007. Rondell, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Rondell, Hurricane Zeta hit your county and much of southwest Alabama back in October of 2020. Doesn't seem like it could have been that long, but it's been a couple of years. Yep, time just flies. And so could you talk a little bit about the damage there in Clark County? The damage was very significant, Sonny. Our power grid was down in the rural areas of the county. It was down for probably 11 or 12 days. I know at my house, I was without power for about 11 days. And it was devastating. We were in the middle of an election. We had to scramble to get generators to put it out in our polling locations. But with everybody working together as a community, as a county, it turned out good. It turned out good. Well, the federal government has a program that fortunately doesn't hit Alabama all that often. It's kind of a first cousin to the CDBG grants that everybody in county government knows about. But this is focused on disaster recovery and really only occurs in things like hurricanes, major floods, out in the far west, major fires. This program that's now about ready to kick off here in Alabama. The state received around $500 million to respond to and to complete the recovery from Hurricanes Zeta and Sally that occurred in the fall of 2020. And we're talking about this today because the association is going to have some involvement in the planning process for seven counties in southwest Alabama that will be eligible for funding. Well, we're pleased to know that the association will be involved in this process because these seven counties are small counties, very rural, simply they don't have the staff, the personnel to handle a program of this magnitude. And with the association being involved, to me, it's a godsend. It's a godsend because I think this will enable us to get the money on the ground where it's needed, where we can help our citizens. Well, and the discussions began in late 2022. The officials with ADECA reached out to the association in large part because of the success and attention we've gotten with the IAC program. We discussed it at the board of directors meeting in December at the Ledge Conference. But at that time, we honestly didn't have enough details to know whether or not the board would want to embark on this project and whether or not it would fit into the association's services that we provide. It will be the first time we've ever done anything like this. So we're going to depend on the seven counties and the commissioners there to help us succeed. That's so true. This is the first one of its magnitude for us. With everyone coming together, we have to look at it from the seven county perspective. But each county in the region, and I'm going to say region, I think that they have to pull the people together within their perspective counties and make sure that we're all singing off the same sheet of music. Well, that's right. It's Perry, Escambia, Washington, Clark, Marengo, Wilcox, and Dallas. And we've been asked by folks from other counties in that area, how did those counties get picked? And I'm able to be like Pontius Pilate and go, I have no idea. (laughs) We're still learning, but those are counties that have impacts on the community that have not been addressed. And they have qualifying populations that meet the low to moderate income. Sounds like I know what I'm talking about, and I really don't. I'm still trying to (laughs) learn this. But on the ground, our function will be to show up and conduct community meetings and to help the community identify what projects it wants to do. Well, from my perspective, I feel a lot better about the project. I attended the first original meeting, and I really left that meeting somewhat disappointed because I was wondering how in the world we would be able to get this money on the ground before it could really get to the people that needs it. Now, with the association handling it, I feel a lot better. I see some light at the end of the tunnel. 
you know, as a staff, we're excited about it. We've got to get busy gearing up. Our role will start probably in early April. We've got a lot of infrastructure work to do, but once we're ready to go, then we'll be involving the community, not just commissioners, but mayors and other members of the community that can help identify the projects. And this will be a learning experience for us too, Rondell. We've not done anything like this before. We should have a lot of help directing us, but I'm excited about the idea of being able to work on the ground with members in those seven counties to try to identify projects. And as elected officials, county commissioners, mayors, city councilmen, we'll do everything to make sure that you get the tools, make sure that you have the necessary information, get people to the meetings and things of that nature. We'll do everything in our power to make sure that that happens because at the end of the day, we really want this program to be a success and get the money out to the people. Well, and we'll take you up on that <laughs> for sure. The board of directors approved this earlier this month. We now have a signed agreement with the DECA. The association is a subrecipient, and we're ready to get moving. The focus of the program primarily is in two areas. One is in the area of housing, folks who might still be living in flood-prone areas or folks that might still have damage that's keeping them from being able to fully use their homes. That's kind of one category of funding. And then the other deals with infrastructure improvements, water and sewer economic issues, and we've got to learn what those mean together. So this really is a wonderful fit for what the association has done on so many fronts. We're going to learn it together, and we look forward to getting to do that. And we look forward to it. We're excited about it, and we just want to see what becomes of it. But I know that association handling it, it will be did, and it will be did in a very efficient manner. And I just want to thank the board of directors for their involvement and accepting the recommendations coming from you. It really goes back to our motto, six to seven candidates with one voice. And I just want to thank the board for taking this initiative and accepting the recommendation. Well, Rondell, we appreciate your support, too. We're excited, and we'll get this done together. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me again. And for our final topic this month, we'll talk about driving safely. Mary Kay Fraze is Vice President of County Risk Services and joined the company before the company existed <laughs> and has, over the last four years, moved us to a place where we are doing all of the things we promised we were going to do. And one of those things is to try to address safe driving. Mary Kay, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And we started this journey together when the idea of the association's insurance programs, managing their own claims, handling their own risk management was just kind of something we wrote on a whiteboard. That's right. <laughs> and we lived through this transition together and still speak to each other. That's right? right. And one of those things we talked about early on was that we needed to try to provide safety resources to prevent automobile accidents. It's a workers' yep. comp issue. It's a liability issue. But more importantly, it's a people issue. Right. And in 2019, for heaven's sakes, yep. the insurance boards approved the purchasing of a state-of-the-art driving simulator. Yes. And it finally got here last week. It did, which is crazy what a journey it's been. But it seems like a lifetime ago when we got the approval. But it is here, and we are super excited. And the delay was not us. The delay was COVID, right? The delay was COVID, yep. At one point, we were hearing that the diesel generator we needed for the trailer system was going to take us only 24 months to procure. The trailer was going to be anywhere from 12 to 16, up to 24 months, depending on what vendor we talked to. So it has been a journey for sure, but it makes it all the more exciting that it's actually here now. 
And of course, the goal of the project is to provide real life training in a simulated environment for folks across county government deputies, of course, but what has been purchased and what's sitting out here in the parking lot today is a state-of-the-art program that will allow us to do more than just sheriff's deputies. Yeah, absolutely. It is a spectacular piece of equipment that has a multitude of simulations that we can run with numerous types of vehicles. So you're talking not just potentially a sheriff's deputy vehicle, but a dump truck, a heavy piece of equipment. It's really going to allow us to provide next level training for all segments of county personnel and that's exciting to us because as you know those types of losses are a big loss leader when you look at our loss runs over a 10-year period so it's exciting to have something in our tool chest that can have a huge impact on reducing those losses and keeping our members safe when you sit in your seat in my seat you know that there are literally right this minute hundreds of vehicles that are on the road not just deputies' cars, but garbage trucks and motor graders yeah. and dump trucks and then county vehicles driven by office staff. Yep. They're crisscrossing the state right now, and we get literally hundreds of claims in a year. Absolutely. It's really mind-boggling when you stop and look at the number of vehicles that our membership has out on the road on any given day. And one of the casualties of accidents with these vehicles is it costs the county money. Obviously, we've had difficulty in finding vehicles to replace because of that kind of supply chain problem. Yep. But more importantly, it's the human side that we're trying to address with this simulator, and that is to help people get back home at night. Correct. It really is a tool that is going to allow us to get people in a seat, put them in a situation that's going to test their normal policies and procedures of how they handle a specific piece of equipment or a certain type of vehicle, and also look at where are areas of opportunity where maybe it's been a blind spot for them of how they've potentially driven in the past. We see a lot of issues with distracted driving, as I'm sure you can imagine. Yep. This allows us to kind of put them through the test of that. Are you really paying attention as much as you could and to correct that behavior, which keeps our people safe, reduces accidents, reduces losses. This provides us with an opportunity to really have an impact across all three types of coverage, workers' compensation, liability, and property. And that's super exciting to us. So where we go from here in the next few weeks is that the simulator's finally here. We can touch it. Yes. It's a 30-foot trailer. <laughs> CRS has a truck to pull it, and we're going to stay close to home here for the next couple of months. The first step is that the company that we purchased the simulator from will be certifying our risk management employees so that they can operate the system. And once that happens, then we're going to be working right around Montgomery for a while, right? Exactly. The L3 team, which is the simulator manufacturer, they're going to be coming down in training several members of our staff, largely from the risk management department, in early March over a period of about three days to teach us how to run this thing and help us get a handle on the types of simulations we can do. So we're excited about that. And then once we get through that, it's going to allow us to really take the next step of identifying what segment of county personnel would be the best to kind of do our test runs. So we've been in some conversations with a county nearby that is going to allow 
allow us to use their personnel to be that initial group to run through. So that'll be exciting to kind of have those people go through and see the impact that this is going to have long term. And then we hope to have it there over probably a six to eight week period while we do that with different segments of their staff. And we will probably expand once we do that to invite some neighboring counties to bring their personnel over to run through the simulator so that we can get all the timing, the scheduling, any classroom time that we might feel is beneficial as we go through this sorted out before we take it on the road. And that's going to be a pretty cool thing for the funds to be able to take their personnel on the road, set up in a county in North Alabama, have the counties that surround come and train drivers, put them through the exact situations that they face. It's been a long time coming, but it's here and we've still got some work to do. So we're not looking for the phone to start ringing quite yet. That's right. (laughs) When you're coming, we've got some training to do. We've got to learn it. But when we get over to summertime, we've got plans to be on the road. Absolutely. We have several SIDP related training events where we're going to have our new risk management employee that's deemed to be outreach initiative. So he's going to be that primary person taking the simulator out. He's going to be doing some presentations, filling the membership in on where we are now, what's coming. But yes, we hope by mid to late spring, we're going to be rocking and rolling. Our goal is to have it down at the convention in August. So we'll, we'll cross our fingers on that. That's you right. know, we don't want to make commitments quite yet because we started in 2019. I know, <laughs> so I know. We're going to have it, but it's here. And I appreciate very much you giving us some details. And we'll say to the counties, keep your eyes and ears open. And we're going to bring this baby and train your drivers. That's right. Thank you very much for joining us for this month's Two North Jackson podcast. As we look forward to the start of the 2023 legislative session, that means this podcast will be put on a short pause and it will return on Friday, June 30th. In the meantime, we'll turn you over to what we call policy perspectives and you watch your inbox for those podcasts as we navigate ourselves through the 2023 legislative session. Thank you and have a good day. Mm-hmm.